I hope you like the name of my sermon today. This is the final message in our sermon series, The People of God, that we've been going over. And the sermon is called Psycho Love, or Psycho Love, I suppose. For a very, very long time, people from New Life have wanted to hear sermons from me about the end times. Last summer, when we were going through First and Second Thessalonians, the closest I got was reading about the idea of, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, that the dead in Christ uh, will be raised first, and then those of us who are living will meet with them in the air as we all come to, to Jesus. And so that was kind of the closest I got to doing end times stuff. But today, it's end times time, at least partially. We're going to do some end times talk. I want to te- preach to you about what I consider to be the most clear sign, an obvious sign, of the end times, besides seeing the bolt of lightning striking in the sky and all those things, what is an obvious sign that we can look around and see? This comes from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, which theologians call the mini-apocalypse. It's mini because it's not as long as Revelation, and it's only one chapter long, and Jesus is answering questions about what uh, the end times will look like with his disciples. And just for the sake of, of knowledge, for the sake of your own understanding, the end times is technically between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming, when he brings all creation uh, underneath his rule and everything is set right. It says in, in Revelation, there will be no more crying, no more tears, for the old order of things will have passed away and that Jesus will be our light and we will have access to the tree of life 24-7 without problems. So, this, so we are living in the end times. From the time of Christ to now, we are living in the end times. So Matthew 24, 3 to 14, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When you have been curious if you were his disciple, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. And, you know, he's talking to his disciples, so... This applies to all Christians. Watch out, Christian, that no one deceives you. Many will come in Jesus' name, in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of birth pains. So here we have this picture, and and, uh, when we read this, we can obviously see that all of this stuff is happening in our world today. Wars and rumors of wars. I think rumors of wars, since 9-11, when kind of warfare changed, all we have is rumors of wars all the time. All the time. You say the wrong word, the president says the wrong word, doesn't do the right thing, and all of a sudden there's a rumor of war. I think about like North Korea and different things like that. So... He says in verse 8, all of these are the beginning of birth pains. So what Jesus is saying is, from, from the time of his resurrection until the end of time, this stuff is going to be happening, and this is the beginning of birth pains. So this is going to be, uh, history is moving in this cycle of, of birthing the end times. So this stuff is on the rise. It's happening more and more in the end days. And just like a woman in labor, there could be a contraction, then there could be mi- minutes where nothing much is happening, then the contraction comes. And these contractions we're living through in our world today 
are a sign of the end times. And in my opinion, I do feel like all that stuff is getting closer together in human history as we are, as the world has changed so rapidly in the last 150 years uh, with the advent of transportation, uh, mass transportation, the airplanes, cars, the internet. We're living in a way that no one has ever lived before in the history of the world. You know, people are like tribal, like Israel, you know, up until we get to more recent days, like the last few hundred years. And boy, oh boy, has the world changed. And, and with that change, generations have gotten shorter. You know, it used to be that maybe 100 years or something would be a generation, but the world changes a generation every couple of years now. Just, woof. It changes generations like the iPhone, you know? <laughs> and this is uh, end days plus premium plus, I guess we're in now. It's a little bit bigger. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Don't be alarmed by these things. We all get alarmed by these things, but this is just what happens in the world, in the world that is ruled by sin and death. Verse 9, Then you will be handed over to, the per- to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. We know that happened in the book of Acts and throughout history. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. He's talking to Christians. Turn away from the faith and begin to hate, betray and hate one another. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then we, at the end, will come. Christian, be watching. Because you may fall away from the faith and betray and hate one another if you're not careful. You and the church. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most Christians will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. In context, standing firm is not allowing your heart to grow cold, not losing your love. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So I'm joining a a tradition of gospel preachers that's been from the time of Christ until the present and will continue in the future, where we declare a kingdom uh, that's not of this world, where Jesus is Lord and things are set right until the time when he comes back. It's a huge thing. We're preaching that to one another, and we're looking at our hearts and saying, just because the world is more wicked and things are, are going in a bad direction, do not let your heart grow cold. Do not begin to hate and despise one another. Because, I mean, that sounds familiar too, doesn't it? Christians, Christian versus Christian. Not good. There's a lot to be unpacked in that passage. I unpacked more than I intended to unpack because I'm long-winded, apparently. Um, We're not going to unpack that whole passage today. But the sign within the church that I want to focus on is that the love of many will grow cold. That they will begin to betray, Christians will begin to betray and hate one another, forsaking the very faith that Jesus passed on to us. Even, it says in Matthew 24, 24, 24, even if it, were, if it were possible, even the elect could be deceived during this time. This is dark stuff. And it's tricky and deceptive stuff, too. You know, all of us, we have to admit right off the bat, to some degree have been deceived or are being deceived during these end times. And that deception 
according to the word of God, causes our love to grow cold. But the person who stands firm to the end in love will be saved. And this is not just love as we would conceptualize it, but this word for love that's used in this passage is agape love. The unconditional love of Jesus Christ for us and for other people made in his image. You know, the enemy is not the boogeyman out there, but in here. This is where the enemy is. In me, in my beloved church family. And because of the increase of wickedness in our world during these end times, the love of many will grow cold. This word agape, used in this passage for love, is one of several Greek words that are available to be used for love, but this word was chosen special in this passage. And it refers to a pure, willful, act of the will, sacrificial love that intentionally desires another's highest good. Philippians says, looking not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others, and leveraging all that you are to lift up other people. Uh, This is the love of Jesus on the cross. Jesus died on the cross, and and as he was dying, he was forgiving his enemies, forgiving the asking God to forgive those people that were nailing him to the cross. And even as his disciples turned coat and ran, uh, he was he had an intention to restore them. Uh, he, he even reached out to the thief next to him, a murderer apparently, a bad enough offense to be put to death along with Jesus. And when that man cried out to the Lord, Jesus, he said, I tell you the truth, today I will, you will be with me in paradise. That man had no chance to repent or change his life. All he had was a cry, desperate cry to Jesus with his final breath. That is the love of, of God, demonstrated through Christ. Greater love has no greater meaning than this, that one would lay down their life for their friends. Uh, But Jesus laid down his life for his enemies and his friends. So so this is the love that we're not supposed to let grow cold. That we are not supposed to let our agape love, our, our sacrificial, intentional, willful desire to love those around me in the way that Jesus loved me on the cross. Agape love. The trickiest enemy is not really out there. The enemy is within. The enemy is within me and my own heart, within the church. The dividing line between good guys and bad guys is Jesus Christ and us. Good guys and bad guys. Jesus Christ is the only good man who ever lived, truly good. And even Jesus deflected, his, deflected to the Father and said, who is good but God alone? Then he also said, well, I'm God, so, you know. So this is the thing, like, it's, it's easier to divide the world into evil and good, and certainly there are people that do eviler things than others, but really, in, in, the, in the scope of salvation and the work of God, it's Jesus on one side and all of humanity on the other side, including you and me. It's in our hearts. In the end times, Jesus says, their agape love will grow cold. Here's where the fun comes in. I was reading this in the Greek this week on the internet, and it's wonderful to be able to do that. The Greek word for cold is, and I'm not kidding about this, psycho. Or it's pronounced suko, which means to breathe, to blow, to cool by blowing, to be made cool or cold. And in this passage, it's used for, as a metaphor for waning love of Christians. Don't let your love grow. Don't let your agape grow psycho. 
Okay. Just put that snippet on the, on the website in a loop and people will never come to church here. Don't let your pure, your willful, sacrificial love that intentionally desires another's highest good grow cold because of the wickedness of the world today that was blowing on the church. I used to work in a freezer at, uh, in a distribution center and I had to be kicked out of the freezer because I, was, I sweat too much and my freezer gear got stuck on my body, frozen. Like, you know, so they, they kicked me out of the freezer and made me work on the floor because um, I, I just sweat too much. But you see in the freezer, you see like in a commercial freezer, you see the blowing, you can see the cold air blowing in. Uh, that's obvious. But m- what, what maybe is not so obvious is all the ways that we let ourselves get blown around by the wickedness of the world that we live in. And, uh, and, and to the point that even our, our love, the love of Jesus that we have, grows cold. Subtly, subtle, not obvious. This is the constant drip of wickedness and confusion in our culture that Jesus said would be here in the end days. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Christians, he's warning us that our love can grow cold, that we can become selfish, we can become distracted. We can make church about everything but Jesus. You know? It can happen. And I think all of us can feel, can feel our hearts grow cold. I mean, I really think that you can, you can say to yourself, you know, I feel like two years ago I was a more loving person. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hold grudges against people so much. I didn't get angry so easily. I didn't find it difficult to forgive. But, geez, something's changed in my heart. The wind's blowing. These are things that we need to keep an eye on. These are um, dashboard dingy lights that we need to pay attention to. When your pure, willful, sacrificial love, which desires another person's good, forgives enemy, and seeks to love, gets cooled by wickedness and frozen, you get psycho love. We need to face the fact this morning that the plan of Satan in the end times is to blow and blow and blow on Christians until their, until their self-giving love goes bye-bye. This is not feeling. This is willful love and service to one another. And he blows so subtly, and perhaps he'll, take a, he'll blow on one day, and then he'll take a day off and blow another day. Pretty soon, you're, you're getting cold. You don't even realize it, like the, like the metaphorical frog that slowly boils to death in a pot. It just happens. So, so the plan of Satan in these end times is to blow on us until our love grows cold. You know, sometimes food is too hot, so we blow on it so it becomes edible. But what if you blew on your food for 24 hours? It would be gross. It would be rotting. It would be cold. You know, we need the heat. We need the heat. We need to be near the fire with the rest of God's people, the church. The Satan wants to use whatever he can to blow cold air on Christian love. He wants his greatest enemy, Jesus Christ, to stand there and have all the people that used to be faithful to Jesus in his way fall away. That's what he wants to see happen. He wants to leverage whatever wickedness is happening out there to bring about disunity in the church, to bring about factions and adversarial groups within the church, and if possible, to keep people from being a meaningful part of the body of Christ altogether for reasons that don't sound too unreasonable to us. 
Satan wants us to stop meeting together, as we saw last week in Hebrews 10.25. Even at that early time in the composition of the Bible, and when Hebrews was written, the author saw that many people are, are, were excited they're meeting together, but they stopped. They stopped meeting together. And he says, do not stop meeting together as many are in the habit of doing. Gather as the church. Because ceasing to meet together will cause our love to grow cold. So we have to stop, you know, looking outside to blame others and other situations for our hardened love and look inside. Satan has told people in these days that they can remove their coal from the fireplace and continue to keep warm. Which is insanity. It's insanity. It's a lie. Because when an ember is removed, it's only a matter of time before it grows cold apart from the fire that birthed it. The gathered people of God is the fire, the church. Whenever I have a fire in my backyard... After I pour water on it, the next day, the embers are cold. They still look like embers. They are blackened. They have clearly been on fire before, but now they are useless to keep anybody warm at that point. No matter what we touch with these blackened pieces of wood, they leave messy burn marks and stains on everything. And these bits of blackened, burned-up wood we eventually scoop up and toss in the garbage or over the fence in your neighbor's lawn. And the same thing happens when Christians remove themselves from fellowship. They still look like Christians. They still read their Bible, pray, maybe even listen to Caleb when they drive to and from work. Or to radio preachers on their way, here and there. They, they have clearly been on fire for God before. They look like Christians, but they have separated themselves, removed themselves. They are quickly becoming cool without the inner ability to keep themselves or anyone else warm. In fact, they're more likely than anything to leave stains, burn marks on everything they touch. Satan wants to use whatever is happening in culture in every, any given generation to blow relentlessly on the church, the body of Christ, to make our love grow cold, to make us become selfish and self-righteous and proud and experts, self-appointed experts on all things with the right thoughts on everything over and against other people. And that's the spirit of the age we live in. It's always been that way throughout these end times since Jesus ascended into heaven with a promise that in the same way we saw him going up, we would see him come back down to us. So when has Christian love grown cold in history? When have we looked outside of ourselves for the enemy and missed the point of following Jesus? Loving God, loving others, forgiving all people. When has Christian love gone psycho? Well, one of those times is the Crusades. And if you get to talk to, talking to some student from, uh, from Skidmore or something in a coffee shop, you know, they're going to bring up the hypocrisy of the church throughout the ages. You always hear about the Crusades. And I'd like to tell you that they really weren't that bad, but they were that bad. In the first three centuries of the church, Christians were pacifists. But following the conversion of the emperor in the fourth century, the church became open to using violence for its means. Church leaders were initially shocked by this, but began supporting the use of force against heretics, meaning people that disagree with you theologically and perhaps hold beliefs that are unorthodox or even damaging. Uh, but there, these people with incorrect ideas 
uh, would be burned at the stake or executed. Augustine, the newly converted emperor, formulated his theory of just war, which really means holy war. And in the medieval world, they concluded that violence for Christians is not evil. Instead, it's morally neutral. Morally neutral. That's really true. And this kind of thinking allowed the Crusades to become possible. Here's how Augustine thought about this. He said, suppose someone has an infection in their leg. It turns, it's starting to turn gangrene. You strap them down to the table against their will, and you cut off the leg to save their life. You can justify a lot of stuff <laughs> with that kind of logic. So in order to sell the crusade idea to the masses, preachers used ideas that people understood, ideas of family. And they said, the Eastern Christians are your brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are being persecuted by the Muslims. Christ is your father. He has, and he has been shamed because his estate has been taken away by these Muslims. You must go to defend your brothers and sisters and recover your father's property. If you had hung around in a, a medieval tavern where soldiers were gathering, one Christian his historian said that they would have said they're fighting for the liberation of Jerusalem. So throughout the 15th century, other church-sanctioned crusades were fought against heretical Christians, people that hold, held wrong beliefs, against heretical Christian sects of the church, against the Byzantine and Ottoman empires. And, and those were used to combat paganism and heresy, but also for political reasons. So here they're trying to, it's not just to purify the church's doctrine, it's about putting to death those who disagree. That would be like uh, <laughs> inviting visitors to a new members class on a Sunday morning, and like they don't, they, they have a trouble understanding the Trinity, and they have a, a belief about the Trinity, which is not orthodox and probably not helpful. And I'd be like, okay, well, I'll call the execution ministry, <laughs> take care of these first-time visitors. There's no welcome bag and free movie tickets for you, or cups of coffee, like this is the end. So this is obviously not even close to the idea of self-giving love that Jesus promoted and lived with his life, death, and resurrection the Savior who died for his enemies and those who obviously disagreed with his theology. This is not the way of Christ. But be that as it may, dozens of crusades were fought in this period of history, this dark period of history. And this was a focal point of, of European history for centuries. The, out of this practice of going around and, and killing people that disagree with us and taking back our land for God, apparently, for Father God. We got this idea of indulgences as well. So, so soldiers, Christian soldiers who feel guilty about the blood that they've shed, they can buy indulgences so God forgives them. This is the kind of stuff they fought against in, in the Reformation, which we are direct descendants of. Nothing good came of this. And this is why every college student you meet in a coffee shop will say to you, what about the Crusades? Now you can say, yeah, that was bad. But we've really tried to turn this thing around. <laughs> so we have a welcome bag for you. We have coffee. now. Nothing good came of it. Because of the increase of wickedness, you know, the, it's weird to think, but the, the medieval times were, the, were part of the end times too, after Christ, before his second coming. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most had grown cold. And violence and hatred of enemies became the focal point of Christendom. Christendom. 
emphasis on the don't. The opposite of self-giving love, the opposite of agape, Christians letting their love grow cold, beginning to see the enemy as outside of themselves rather than in their own hearts and among their own fellowships. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So many times we forget that. That our battle is not with the person that we're not getting along with at church. Our battle is not against any person. Any person that you meet in church or outside of the church is worthy of your self-giving agape love that Jesus died to give you. And from his love and the Holy Spirit's presence in, your, in, your, in yourself, you can pour self-giving love onto anyone around you. Everyone deserve, deserves it. Because Jesus says so. I believe that in our day, we've made the mistake as the people of God, saying that it is the government and its mandates and masks and vaccine shaming that's so prevalent now that are hurting the church. But the truth is that removing ourselves from worship, from the fire of God, because we disagree with one another on these debatable things is the real culprit. These are all debatable things. that We, we can all hold different opinions on them and come together in Christ and maybe learn something and be humble enough to be taught or be bold enough to teach with an ear to listening. We have allowed Satan to fool us and separate us from one another. And I'm not talking just about new life, but about the church in general. Uh, over these culture wars, they're, they're blowing their cold wind on the church. Masks and protests and counter-protests, COVID-19, mandates and masks and shutdowns. We blame the government for the church growing small and cold, but it's really our doing. It's our doing how we respond to these things. When we remove ourselves from fellowship... We're driven wedges in our relationships over these debatable things. They're debatable because people, they're, we know they're debatable because everyone's debating them all the time. All the time. When you wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, you turn on your phone, you can read another news story about it and stay up longer. But this is how, this is how Satan is making his plan move forward. Separating Christians from one another, making their love grow cold, and, and separating from people that have different ideas about you than you on debatable issues. It's a sad plan. And the greatest tragedy of our day is that Christians would separate themselves along political and opinion-based lines and cease to fellowship with those that don't agree with them. Wouldn't it be, I think it would be the worst thing if we became separated after all of this is said and done into Republican church, Democrat church, Trump Republican church, Republican church. You know, Obama Democrat versus Bernie Sanders. So, like, wouldn't that be sad? But that's what's going to happen unless we intentionally don't let our love grow cold. We have to not allow those cold winds to blow on us and make the very light in us become darkness. Because when the light within you is, dark, is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus says. We must remember this truth that unites us, which is far stronger than any opinions that may divide us, and that is that the blood of Jesus Christ flows through our veins. We are a family of God. Whether, no matter where you fall on your opinions or the spectrum of politics, um, of activism or not activism, of vaccines or no vaccines, masks or no masks, no, uh, 
no one can believe that we could be united with all these different opinions, but we can be because the most important thing about us is Jesus Christ. And he binds us together. Jesus' blood makes us a family, adopted into a family, and we all benefit from discussing our thoughts and opinions with one another while keeping Christ front and center. And by, by that, I mean very specifically the way of Christ. Not just this idea of like the blonde, golden-haired, blue-eyed Jesus picture, you know, between you and other people. I'm talking about the way of Christ. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Make every effort to live together in peace, as far as it depends on you. Use everything that you have and leverage it all to look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others, just like Jesus did. If we keep the way of Jesus front and center, we can hold different opinions. We can grow as a people. We might even have our mind changed on debatable things. But if we're not all here together, we can't do that. Because, you know what, now we're just a church that is Democrat or Republican or Socialist, whatever it might be. When people separate based on these debatable things and forget the strength of the blood of Jesus Christ, that's the blowing of cultural winds on the church, and it will freeze our love. I don't want to see that happen. Here's a good way to keep Christ front and center, along with people that you might have disagreement with on debatable issues. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen. That's what it says in James 1.19. That's the way of Jesus. We might learn something. But Jesus, the way of Jesus, and the agape love that flows from Jesus' sacrifice on the cross must remain front and center. When you have a debate with somebody or you're having a difference of opinion, keep in mind that um, that person that you're talking to, Jesus died for them. Jesus died to save them, just like he died for you. Remember the height from which you've fallen. It says in Scripture, in all humility, come to Jesus. This time we've been through has no doubt been quite divisive. And we've had to figure out how to get through this time along with everybody else. When the government shut down most everything, with some exceptions, without singling out the church, you know, we complied in order to cooperate, to cooperate with the rest of society. The government never commanded us to stop preaching in Jesus' name. They never did, which would be worth not obeying. They never said we were not allowed to have online gatherings or small groups over Zoom. They simply said that for a period of time, most of society was going to stop gathering in larger groups as we dealt with the virus. Did it all make sense then? No. Does it make sense now? Not all the time. <laughs> For instance, you know, liquor stores be becoming essential businesses. doesn't make sense. Unless you're, a, I mean, come on now. But by and large, sporting events, theater companies, musical concerts, schools and churches where people gather together and sing and spray droplets everywhere, they said, shut down temporarily. So, so we did it. We started streaming services weekly and having face-to-face -face fellowship on Zoom on Wednesdays. Online Bible studies in small groups. Great ones, actually. Some people, it was their best small group experience meeting over Zoom that I talked to. And in doing this, no one had to give up meeting together. We just shifted our meeting together in order to cooperate with society. It didn't quite work. The curve has, <laughs> was the curve flattened? I don't know. It was clunky. It was poorly executed, probably. 
but it wasn't religious persecution. And it did not single out the Church of Christ in its mandates. Now, if it had, if the government said to us, as they said to the apostles in, in Rome, no longer, you're commanded to no longer preach in the name of Jesus, we would, we would stand up and say, sorry, we must obey God rather than men. But on debatable issues, submit to your ruling authorities as unto the Lord. So that's what we tried to do. And these days, the great thing is that everyone can self-regulate. You can either do or not do as you see fit. The issue was not the government, but the choices Christians made during this time, according to their personal opinions. And as the pressure from culture blew on the church, many Christians decided to not participate in church anymore. If we can't meet in person, we're not going to meet online. We're not going to do small groups. And people forsook meeting together during the lockdown. And now that we're fully open, people still aren't all here. People have separated from the church and not joined back in. And again, I'm not talking about new life specifically, but the larger church. I mean, we see it everywhere in society. Ceasing to meet together is not a government problem at this point. It's a Christian problem where Christians have decided that they don't like how something is being handled by their leaders or don't prefer online stuff. They have self-selected out of meeting together. And this is what Satan is actually doing. One of the things he's doing in these end times, his whole enterprise is to deceive the Christians into separating themselves from fellowship all because they happen to disagree with one another. Our love grows cold. We still look like Christians, we still sound like Christians, but our love is growing cold. Over the past five weeks since I returned from my sabbatical, uh, leading into last week's service, I've talked about this idea of solidifying your membership in the body of Christ, which to me is such an important idea to become, to, to fit, find the place where your giftedness and your calling meet what the body of Christ needs. And that's what the sign-ups are all about. That's what the small groups are all about, solidifying your membership in the body of Christ. But I'd be remiss if I didn't preach to you the one thing that is of ultimate importance, no matter what ministry you are involved in, according to the Word of God, whatever project you are working on, or whatever place you serve in the body, or whatever small group you participate in. And that thing is agape. The love that Jesus says will grow cold on the day that the world and larger culture blows its cold wind on the church. So Paul, after a long treatise on solidifying people's, bo- people's place in the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, he shifts gears in 1 Corinthians 13. I'll start in, in 12, 27, and we'll end with this. Now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all, all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. So that's solidifying your place in the body of Christ. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have the word agape there. That's the word that's chosen. Love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient 
To be patient in the Greek means bearing the offenses and injuries of others. To be long-suffering, slow to anger and slow to retaliate and punish other people. Bearing the offenses and injuries of others in relationship. Love is kind. In the Greek, this means to show oneself to be mild-mannered. In other words, approachable. Put out the vibes of being approachable and humble. That's kindness. It does not end. It di- and what that means is, is jealous. To burn with zeal, to be heated, or to boil with hatred and anger. It does not envy. It does not boast. That's bragging and talking about how great you are excessively. It is not proud, which means arrogant. To inflate, to blow up, to be puffed up, to bear oneself loftily. I'm just reading from the dictionary. The Greek dictionary. It does not dishonor others. And that means to act unbecomingly or not appropriately towards other people. It is not self-seeking to seek after and demand something from someone else. Love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, which means provoked. To be irritated, aroused to anger, to scorn and despise others, to exacerbate, to burn with anger. Love keeps no record of wrongs. That's past injuries that have been kept against you. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It does not rejoice in injustice or unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth as taught by God, respecting God and his purposes through Christ and rejoicing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love always protects. That means to cover So to deck, to thatch, to cover, to protect or keep by covering. So love protects other people. It always trusts, and that means believes. To think that what you're being told is true. To be persuaded, to credit, to place confidence in the person you are loving. Love always hopes, which means, of course, for us, waiting for our salvation, but also hoping for the work of Christ in the life of another person. It always perseveres, which means to remain, to, to not fall away when calamity or difficulty comes. Finally, it says, love never fails. Love never falls, ever. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the completeness comes, when Jesus comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This week, our homework is to evaluate ourselves and see how the wind and the wick- of the wickedness of society has blown on our faith and caused us to become cold and forget the gospel. And to reorient ourselves, not to our idea of love, but to God's idea of love, which is found in agape, which is found in, in kindness in thinking the best of others, in being approachable, humble, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, that we might all have unity in Christ, 
Because if we don't have unity, as people that think very differently and have different opinions on many things, if we don't have unity, the world is not going to know that Jesus came because we're just like every other organization that falls apart and splits and becomes a second American Legion or becomes a second Kiwanis Club because we just can't get along with the other people. No, the church is called to a higher standard. People that disagree fiercely but always keep Jesus front and center following the way of Jesus. And maybe we all grow, too, from the experience. So I say, my desire as your pastor, my desire for the church, is that we would be a fellowship of Republicans, Democrats, Socialists, whatever you want to be, who, who love and who are humble enough to listen and to maybe even be changed uh, by God. Because one thing is not debatable, and that's the love that God's given us through Jesus Christ, the gospel of our salvation. And that we have to offer to everybody as far as it depends on us. So I'm going to, I'm going to pray and close the service. Father, I pray for the church. I pray for New Life Fellowship. Uh, this is an awesome family, God. I pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, the attributes of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and goodness would characterize our love. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.